Hello and welcome to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, a podcast where we discuss all things relating to your well-being, including interviews with experts in the fields of nutrition, physical and mental health, and my five-minute food facts series. I am Amanda Hayes, your host, a lawyer turned nutritionist with a passion for well-being. Before I introduce today's guest, I will mention that although I will often be speaking with experts, any information or advice provided in Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast is not intended to be used to treat, cure or prevent injuries or medical conditions and is not a substitute for advice from your own health professional. Today I am here with accredited exercise physiologist Brendan Mowat. Brendan has several roles, including he's part of the Body and Mind Research Group at the University of South Australia. He is an educator and director at the Knowledge Exchange, and he's a director at the Biomechanics Practice. Brendan will explain to us what all those different roles entail. But the main focus of our topic today is pain. I will be speaking to Brendan about the causes of pain and how pain can be treated in a clinical setting. So today I am here with Brendan Moat. Hi, Brendan. Hi, Amanda. How are you doing? Good, thank you. Thank you for coming on my podcast today. Um, Brendan, you're an accredited exercise physiologist. So what led you to study exercise physiology and where did your interest come from? Um, Yeah, good question. Um, I kind of fell into it a little bit, I think. Um, So, um, you know, I always loved exercise and movement and got a lot of enjoyment and and benefit um, physically and mentally from Mm -hmm. from exercise. And, you know, having sickness in in my family and that sort of stuff, I think um, I I saw from a young age sort of physiotherapy working with, you know, people like my mother and whatnot with, with, you know, chronic conditions. And Mm -hmm. I thought that would be quite a rewarding um, sort of area. So I was a personal trainer for, for many years and then went down an exercise science pathway. And, um, you know, I, I enjoyed that, but it didn't kind of really set, set, set you up for in particular. And then so I had these options of physiotherapy or exercise physiology and um, I ended up going down a, a pathway of exercise physiology. And I could say that, you know, during my master's, I, I still wasn't exactly sure where I would end up, but, but I've sort of develop the passion um, over time, I guess, for, from, you know, really just engaging in that and, and learning more and more about people and movement and how all these things fit together. Fantastic. And we, I, I will speak to you about all the different roles you have, but first of all, where did you study and um, how long did it take? Yeah, it's, it's, it's ongoing. It's never really stopped since I started. So, um, yeah, I, I did my... Um, an undergrad in, in physical education and exercise science at Victoria University in Melbourne. I did my master's of exercise physiology uh, at Deakin University in Melbourne, which I think you you you're also a, a grad yes. of of Deakin I, I as did well. My master's in human nutrition there. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Um, and so so that was great. And then I went into clinical practice for for a number of years and, and really sort of engaged in, in um, a lot of continuing education courses mm-hmm. at that. At that point, and um, but then I've sort of gone back, and, and I'm just just finishing now my, my master's in, in research, and I'm about to uh, start my PhD. So Fantastic. that's all, all really exciting. So it's kind of going on for far longer than I ever expected, but I, I've, I've grown to absolutely love um, learning and learning more about you know what it is we do and how we can do it better. 
Yeah, oh, that's great. Can you explain to me and to the listeners, in case they don't know, what is the actual difference between the role of an exercise physiologist and a physiotherapist? Do you get that a lot, by the way? I do. And my response is probably very different to a lot of other people's response. And, um, you know, I think it comes down a little bit to who I'm working with. And and generally in a clinical context, I'm usually working with people in pain, musculoskeletal sort of injuries and and, and whatnot as well. So sort of in, in that context, I think when someone's coming in to see us, whether it's a physiotherapist, an exercise physiologist, a chiropractor, an osteopath, if we are actually being, you know, in line with the evidence and, and, and practicing, you know, guideline care, but then being person-centered, it really shouldn't differ too much from right. each other um, in the sense that, you know, that person should be dictating what's going on. It should be very specific to them. And, you know, if, if it is remarkably different from one person to the next, I sort of question myself to... Well, how person-centered uh, are we being then if it is that right. different? Yeah. So, so I think there's a lot of crossover and I think everyone's got their own individual skills, but the difference between one exercise physiologist and another exercise physiologist could be greater than the difference between me and one other physiotherapist. Oh, and, that's and, very yeah, interesting. If that makes sense. So. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. So you mentioned earlier musculoskeletal pain, and that is one of your passions, I believe, treating people with spine and musculoskeletal, that's a difficult word, pain, and to help manage persistent pain. And on the Knowledge Exchange website, which is one of the things that you do, and we will talk about that in a minute, uh, you say that no matter how many different techniques you applied, and I believe you've trained in several different techniques, Some people responded rapidly and others with similar presentations did not. And you wanted to know why. And you say this led you to a dark and deep search to make sense of these varying presentations. So I I was thinking, I I understand how that could be a deep search, but what was dark about it? Um, It it really was. Um, and, And it still is probably to some extent now, I think, um, you know, the way we're trained, the way we're taught and our, the whole way our society talks about pain um, and injury um, is really ingrained. There's a lot of, um, a lot of tradition, a lot of belief, um, you know, that's quite dogmatic. We've just taken it on board and we've, we've run with it. And when I was sort of training and doing these other continuing education courses, I'd be going in, you know, there'd be this, you know, really inspirational kind of guru who would, who would teach you this technique or these mm-hmm. strategies for dealing with people in pain. And, um, and you learn these very clear cut ways of how to fix people. And for me, I think when I started to, to kind of engage a little bit more in, in uh, the research behind these sorts of things, I started to notice that, that they didn't really kind of hold true or they weren't any better than any other technique or strategy or whatever when we, when we look across the population. Right. So I was like, why does that make sense? I, like I'm seeing some people improve rapidly and other people's mm-hmm. not. So, um, you know, why is that occurring? And I think it led me to really having to critically appraise or look at myself and my own beliefs um, around how I practice and how I work with people in pain. Um, and it, and in doing so, um, I think it started to really challenge who I was as a person. I think I realised that I'd really attached my beliefs around how I work with people 
people and, and me as an exercise physiologist to my identity itself. And so whenever that's challenged and your identity is challenged by, you know, contradictory information, mm-hmm. I think we have this kind of visceral response, this kind yeah. of backfire effect, this, you know, sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight kind of pushing back and you kind of go, no, I don't want to hear this. And I, I think a point where I was ready to sort of listen and hear and try and reconcile the way I viewed the world to kind of make sense for my, my patients, the people I was seeing, to, to better help, help those individuals. And I think for me that was very challenging. I think that is very challenging for a lot of clinicians who have been taught a certain way. And then there's, you know, contemporary new understandings around pain and rehabilitation that really kind of challenge that. And I think that can be really, really difficult. And so I think for me it was just very grounding and, and humbling to go, hey, we don't have all the answers here and I need to be open to updating my belief system and really sort of figuring out, you know, how do I make sense of what I see in the clinic and, and what we see in the research and, you know, that, that, you know, contextualise it for that individual who's sitting there in front of me seeking help. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think I could say the same in the sphere of nutrition um, you really have to keep an open mind because the science is evolving all the time and you can't really afford to to attach yourself to certain paradigms because things change. So it sounds like the scientific research in the area of pain is similar in that as we learn more, as you say, it can contradict some of the things that we thought were, you know, solid scientific evidence and it's not in the end. Yeah. So, Brendan, you have several roles these days. You are part of the Body and Mind Research Group at the University of South Australia. You are an educator and director at the Knowledge Exchange, and I believe you're a director at the Biomechanics Practice as well. So so can you talk us through each of these roles and what you do there? Yeah, sure. So um, uh, as I said before, um, I've gone back to study research. So that's what I'm doing um, at at the University of South Australia. So I get to work with some incredible people here and learn from from people. Um, You walk into the room and you just feel like the dumbest person at any time. And I think that's one of the greatest, greatest sort of situations you could ever hope for. Um, And and I I really kind of enjoy that um, sort of environment. Um, And so I've got a clinical practice. with a couple of great business partners as well. And so that's based in Footscray in Melbourne. Mm. And so that's a multidisciplinary um, group of practitioners. So we've got exercise physiologists, podiatrists, osteopaths, personal trainers, um, and, and whatnot, all under one roof and a nice big gym space and some treatment rooms and whatnot. So that's, that's, that's exciting. And then, yeah, the knowledge exchange is just, this uh, our own continuing education business. So that's all based around trying to translate uh, evidence-based practice, things that we're seeing happen in the research into implementation. So how uh, getting clinicians basically upskilled and being able to use this information in a meaningful way to really help, help people in the community. All right. So your clients are then other uh, clinical practitioners, are they not lay people so much? Um, they are in the knowledge exchange and in that continuing education. Yep. So that is more for, um, sort of allied health professionals, GPs as as well. Um, and yeah. And then on on the side, obviously I'm still seeing clients, um, and and, and working with them in in a pain and rehab context. And you, you said that, uh, the biomechanics practice is based in Footscray. So 
normally would you be traveling back and forth between Melbourne and Adelaide? Um, a little bit. COVID's been um, yeah. a, a nice break from the travel in that sense. Um, but obviously it poses its own challenges at the moment, owning a business in, in, a, in a place that's so, so locked down. Um, so yeah, a bit of travel, but I, I still, in terms of practice, I'll, I practice in Adelaide myself, um, nice. but otherwise, yeah, so otherwise a, a fair bit of wireless um, sort of also wired contact with, with Zoom and whatnot with team meetings and organisation from, from, from that side. Yeah, no, it's really interesting how businesses have had to adapt um, often very quickly. What's um, happening in Melbourne with your biomechanics practice there? Are they, is it, has it gone Zoom based or something like that? Yeah, so it's it's all, all telehealth at the moment, um, and so yeah, we, we we had to sort of adapt very very quickly, um, like many other businesses, to sort of accommodate for that. But we've got this great team who uh, I think very comfortable with with approaching healthcare from um, you know from a Zoom context and being able to really kind of validate, explore, and start experimenting and finding opportunities to help people. Move, move forward again and gain that control. So uh, I think quite often we, we, we think, you know, someone has to be there in person and, and, and doing things to us. Um, but I think this has provided a really nice opportunity to show that actually, you know, they're great adjuncts to be able to, you know, have that hands-on therapy and, and whatnot. However, we can do a lot and actually the really powerful and most important things are probably what we, what we, what we get people sort of in control of and, and we can do that, I think, through, uh, you know, psychologically informed communication strategies and really exploring their ideas and, and, and setting up strategies for them to start figuring out ways forward as well and supporting them um, in that sense. Yeah, look, you're not the first um, person who said that um, in terms of being able to treat through telehealth rather than having to be physically present together. I guess the silver lining in that situation is that it does increase your reach. I mean, you can see a client who's based in, well, another country, another city through the telehealth model. So that's, I guess, if we're looking for some COVID silver linings, there would be one. Yeah, absolutely. I, th I think it's probably, and, and, I'm not, and I'm not certain, but probably improve the quality of care for people living in rural communities in, in terms of their access to, to different you know, practitioners and care and, yeah. um, you know, and force us to really upskill as clinicians to, to be better at these types of interventions and strategies moving forward. So it works and it's helpful and, and um, you know, people, you know, I think are getting a lot out of it, which is really cool. Good to hear. So then if we move on to talking about pain. So I understand, because I've done a little bit of background reading here, that pain, the causes <laughs> of pain are very complex. And there's a lot of scientific research in this area, which you've alluded to and you're obviously also contributing to yourself. So I'd like to ask if it's not impossible, can you explain in lay terms, what is pain? It is, it is complex. Um, and it's a great question. Um, look, to be honest, it's, it's one of those things like we've got, you know, some formal um, definitions of it and it's been debated in our, you know, scientific community a lot and only recently was it sort of updated again and that's still being challenged and, mm -hmm. and spoke about. But I think at the end of the day, like sort of when we're talking lay terms, it's whatever someone says it is. You know, I, I, I experience pain and I know it's unpleasant. You know, it's sensory. I feel it somewhere in my body. Um, I, you know... It's, it's emotional, like there, there's um, a real discomfort to it. Yeah. 
um, and it can make you feel different ways and then act in, in different ways as well. And that's a subjective experience to me and there's no way for me to understand what it is like for you, Amanda, to yeah. experience your pain at all. And so when you come into my clinic, I, th I think it's really important that we kind of acknowledge that whatever someone perceives pain to be for them, is, is it's real pain all the time. Um, and, and so one of the things we've kind of, you know, really sort of learn in more of a contemporary understanding of pain is that pain's more of, more of an experience than it is, you know, indicative of, of specifically tissue damage. It's definitely associated when we, when we break down a tissue yeah. or um, we, we have an injury, but that's not necessary um, nor sufficient alone to result in someone to experience pain. So what that tells us is that pain is then influenced by lots of other factors, yeah. such as, you know, everything that's ha happened in your past before, your, your experiences, your beliefs, your, your knowledge of the world, and then all of the other factors that are happening around you at that point in time. So what you hear, what you can see, the environment, the people you're with can all influence your pain. And I think that makes it really complex because, you know, you'll have the people who go, my pain's always worse when, you know, when it's dark outside and it's cloudy and, and, and whatnot, which is like, how would that affect your tissue? That's, that's such a weird thing. Mm. But it starts to help us make sense that actually, no, pain is influenced by all of these other contextual factors as well, and not just the state of our bodily tissues. Um, and in fact, we can have, you know, our tissues heal and, you know, or, or you know, there's a lot of people out there that's probably, they have pain right now and they've had imaging done and their scans have come back and, and there's nothing there. And so then they're worried that, you know, uh, you know, are they faking it or is yeah. this just in all in my head? And, and it's absolutely not. It's, you know, the pain is absolutely real, but it is telling us that it doesn't have to be something wrong in a tissue. And it just kind of now allows us to open up to the idea that in terms of treating that, we can, we can start looking at all of these different things yeah. that are very individual to, to a person's experience to start finding those opportunities and ways forward. It sounds a bit like you have to be a detective. You're not just looking at the physical presentation, you're looking at the patient's mental state as well and all the contributing factors. Would you say that people have different pain thresholds? Like two people can have a similar injury and experience it very differently? Oh, yeah, absolutely. We've got some like really cool um, ex experiments that have looked at this. Um, you know, uh, Laura Mosley, who, who's a very charismatic pain researcher in our research group, a few, a few people might, may, have, may have heard of him before. Um, and he talks about one, one particular study where if you squeeze your fingertip as hard as you can, you know, you, know, you, you can elicit an experience of pain. If a friend does it to you, it's always more painful. All right. And so there's like this element where it's just like this, this change in one thing, the pressure can be exactly the same, but the control now is, or, or that context of control is slightly different. And now you, your pain experience is completely different. And then we see this in, in, in the real world as well. You can see people with really debilitating, you know, back pain and have very, very minimal, minimal damage or issues going on with their back. And then these, uh, you know, people who, have you know huge damage and at the end of the day they're completely asymptomatic no experience of pain whatsoever 
and, and it just tells us we've got to look, you know, a little bit more yeah. deeply and, and listen to listen to people and, and listen to all of the other things that are going on in their 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 lived experience of the yeah, world. That, that must be fascinating. You say there's various ways to classify pain, um, and obviously it relates to your mental state. You talk about musculoskeletal pain. So can you just explain to us what that is, what type of pain that is? Yeah, um, look, I, I think at the end of the day, a kind of pain is pain, um, like I sort of said before. And when we sort of talk about musculoskeletal pain, we're often talking about like it feels very, you know, in one particular area of your body and, you know, potentially associated with actual damage or some kind of condition within within that, you know, joint or, or, or that tissue of, of some sort. But, you know, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, pain is pain and you can have musculoskeletal pain. And once again, like I sort of said before, it's not necessarily a huge amount of, of damage to that tissue, but that pain still feels very much in your elbow, your knee or, or wherever it might be. But other factors might be influencing um, why you feel it in that area. So if you are facing a client with pain and you need, and obviously you're trying to help them and treat them, do you need to know the cause of the pain? Is that part of the diagnosis or not? Um, it, it's, it's always important and, and, and it's one of those things that's important in, in sort of, you know, hearing the story of someone as well. You know, if there's a mechanism of injury, like they've done something or they've been in an accident or, you know, they, they're turning quickly playing netball or, or whatever, you know, we've got a mechanism of injury that suggests that there's, there's probably some tissue damage here, all right? And that's still... That doesn't tell us that's like the sole, you know, the only, only factor we've got to look at here. But it tells us, all right, there is a real underlying driver to the sensitivity yeah. around that area of, of, of the body. And so, yes, we've got to now take into account, you know, natural healing times or whether or not other surgical interventions or whatever else needs to needs to be put on the table. And then, you know, the appropriate loading of, of that yeah. tissue over time using exercises or movements or whatever it might be. Um, are sort of taken into consideration, but it's always still considerate, considering, you know, the the other aspects of that person's experience. Because I think someone who's going, this means I'm never going to walk again, or I'm never going to play netball again. I, you know, I'm really stressed because I've got to go home and look after the, the kids now. And how am I ever going to do this? How am I going to go to work and put food on the table? Or, you know, we know all of those factors have you know a huge bearing on whether or not someone's actually going to make a full recovery yes. um or you know that they might go through all the, the stages of tissue healing and right. all that structure come good but they've still got this sensitized nervous system this nervous system that's still protecting them because there are all of these other stresses and and so I think we've got to really take in, in, into account that, you know, we're dealing with human beings here. We're not just dealing with a knee. We're not just dealing with uh, a back or whatever it might be at any at any point. And so yeah. it, it's just saying, hey, let's listen. Let's let's look at all of these things. And nothing's off the table in a part of a re good rehabilitation program. It's like, all right, how do we better support people? How do we make sure that they've got the tools and strategies they need to fully recover and re re-engage in all the things in their life that they love doing again. So it's, it's coming through absolutely loud and clear that you can't separate the experience of pain from our, you know, a mental state. Um, and I think there's obviously reasons for that from a, if you're looking at the way the body works and this is going to be very much oversimplified, I'm sure, but um, sensory receptors send message via nerve fibers to our spinal cord and our brain 
this sensation of pain is processed and then perceived. So in one of your blogs where you review recent research into pain, you talk about pain and fear. You say that the fear of pain can lead to the avoidance of a specific activity that results in pain, leading to this cycle of avoidance and a potential increase in the disability. Clearly treating the pain is more than the physical side. It's also the patient's state of mind. And I'm just wondering, do you ever need to work with psychologists and psychiatrists in addition to your own treatment? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's important for some people, you know, that are you know dealing with some psychopathology, you know, some other things where they might want some support with that as well. Um, and yeah, and, and what you just said, Amanda, I think is really, really important is there is no circumstance, you know, while we are alive where our body and our mind can be separated. Yeah. Like they're always interplanned. And we, we just cannot do that. And so to be just treating one of, yeah. you know, that and, and ignoring, you know, the experience or just ignoring the tissue and only treating that is, is kind of like a futile attempt. They're, they're all kind of always engaging in, and at interplay with each other. Um, and so I think that's important. So, yeah, absolutely, like, you know, making sure people have, you know, those, those other types of support. And I think another... Yeah, exactly. If they need it and, and feel themselves that that is important um, as well. And, and, a, and a lot of the time it's not. I think clinicians are getting better in terms of like physiotherapists, exercise physiologists, podiatrists and so on, are getting better and engaging more in just this psych, the psychological components of, yeah. of um, what they're doing. And so they're not turning into, you know, complete psychologists by any means, but they're becoming more informed of how they can kind of navigate someone's, you know, complex story and ensure that they are getting support they need um, and, and also being able to, you know, be just another caring human being that can support, mm. uh, you know, just another fellow human being in, in, in a complex world that we, that we live in. I, I think just to kind of go back just for one second as well in terms of like, you know, what, what pain is and, and what you talked about is, you know, we're getting these signals being sent from tissues to our spinal cord and then they come up to our brain and it's important that we kind of actually understand now um, that, you know, they're not pain signals, you know, they're kind of more, if we can conceptualize them more as like danger messages Yes. and it's the brain's job then to kind of take that information and go, all right, with everything I know about the world so far and everything that's happening around me, is this danger information actually, you know, really threatening to right now? And if it deems to be like, there, there is a lot of danger here for me, it's going to be a useful experience or, or output to have, then we will, what we tend to see is that we're going to be more likely to have a protective response like pain or stiff the body part or, yeah. you know, even an immune response and, and so swelling and, and, and so on as well. So pain doesn't sort of happen kind of in the tissue so much. It's, it's the brain's yeah. job to do that, but we will feel it in and represent it in, in that joint or that part of our body. But then how, how do you explain referred pain? So you, um, and again, this will be a very lay description, but say you hurt some, physically hurt some part of your body, but you experience the pain in a different part. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It, it, you, you, I think you're alluding very well to the complexity of it as well. And so, you know, we've got representations within our brain for all of these different the, body parts and they can be have close representations and they can be associated in, in different ways. And so we, 
definitely can have sort of pain in, in one area. Um, and I think one of the sort of examples you came up is, you know, when we're having, you know, a heart attack, we can have a, a jaw pain or a pain going down our arm or, or, or something like exactly. that, whereas the, where the tissue is going wrong is um, yeah. elsewhere. And so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that's an area I'm, I'm probably not that well versed in, but, you know, we've, we've got similar, uh, um, you know, pathways and, and sharing of, of sensory information through different regions of our brain, um, as well as our body as well. And so it just illustrates the point of how complex it is really, doesn't it, I think. If you're in your clinic and you have a patient who is experiencing fear about their pain, mm. what are some of the ways you can approach it, approach trying to help them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I didn't really talk to the, the fear component before. Uh, got sidetracked. Yeah, um, and, and so I think sort of to go back to, to that is, you know, if someone comes in and, and um, for example, you know, they've got this belief or they've been told that um, they've got bone-on-bone bone knee osteoarthritis and they've been told that, you know, they shouldn't ever do any exercises or they need to be really careful for the rest of their life, obviously it would be very normal and it makes sense. It's almost common sense to then go, I've got a fear about them loading it, about moving, about doing things with, with this knee. And so we're going to probably behave in a certain way associated with that fear. And that's probably going to be avoiding going to a gym or avoiding um, running or avoiding anything that hurts whatsoever. And when we start to avoid things that hurt, obviously it takes less and less for to then hurt. And so what we often see is we kind of pace ourselves into more and more disability over time um, until we, we just can't function in, in our day-to-day -day lives anymore. And so when we kind of look at that from a clinical perspective, it kind of like listening to the person's story and we're, we're kind of gathering and trying to identify what are the things that they're worried about and, and, and why, what kind of underpins that, what are the beliefs, what have they been told before? And then determining you know, is, is this an adaptive strategy? Is it actually helpful? Is this something that, you know, they need to be doing? Or is it potentially an unhelpful belief or um, um, unhelpful fear that is actually kind of getting in the way? And so um, I think what we're, you know, our, our job is to do is kind of identify as like, okay, is it safe to load this knee or this, this person's body in whatever way? And to what extent is it appropriate? And then how do we start to challenge that more and more over time? Now, that could be really, you know, worrying for someone individually. And that's where sort of developing, you know, really good trust with, with, your, with your practitioner um, or your client, depending on obviously what, what side of the conversation you're on, um, it becomes really, really important. And having that trust then go, all right, I know you're worried. I know you, you, you're, you're fearful of this, this movement would you be open to kind of exploring that? Well, you know, I'm not going to do anything that's going to put you in, in harm's way. It might be a little uncomfortable, a little bit, you know, un unpleasurable. Would you be open to exploring it though? And, and that can be the first step is coming up with like little behavioural experiments and, and little ways to start challenging that fear. Breaking it down bit by bit. Yeah, exactly. So, so sometimes it's just kind of gradually exposing someone over time and habituating them to, to that experience and going, oh, look, it, it, it isn't as bad as what, you know, we, we first thought it was going to be like, allowing them to start to re-engage more and more and more and have their nervous system calm down and normalise. And then sometimes it's going, well, actually, it doesn't look like we've, we've got uh, 
an issue with the tissue itself. It's actually really, really safe to move right now. But that pain you're feeling right now may be driven more by all of these behavioural strategies, these protective responses yeah. like bracing the core and squeezing the glutes and trying to keep the back straight and yeah. all of those things often can create so much tension that it becomes this experience of pain. And so challenging those in, in big ways can be really helpful and are often really common things that, that, that change that, that result in people recovering really rapidly in, in, in some cases. And I totally agree because I've had personal experience. Uh, I run a lot and I, um, I have a sore lower back and sometimes I think the fear of hurting my back caused all my muscles to sort of tighten as a protective mechanism. And my physio, who I really trust and he's fabulous, he said to me, he explained it all to me and said, you know, you're not going to hurt yourself if you keep running. And once I knew that and I knew that what I was doing wasn't causing any further damage, it changed. <laughs> Brendan, if you have a what would be a challenging patient for you in that they've experienced chronic pain for decades, for example, before they end up in front of you, is it possible to undo all that pain or that fear of pain and perception of pain over time? Yeah, yeah look, I, I, I truly believe it, it is. Um, you know, when we look at pain, it is a biological process. And one thing we know about biology is forever changing. It's always changing and, and it's adapting to our environment and all of our needs as a human. And so that means it's, it's going to be adapting to, to our very last breath, as um, a man named David Butler has famously said. And so I think that kind of should give us a lot of hope that, yeah. you know, pain can change or you, how you engage in life can change and, and how you experience your pain can change. Yeah, look, I mean, s some people just have these incredible stories and, um, you know, 20 years of, you know, back and abdominal pain and, you know, daily use of opioids ever since, you know, the diagnosis and surgeries after surgeries and countless clinicians. I mean, it, it ends up being you know, often just very complex stories of, yeah. you know, trying to figure out where, where do we start here? Because it's now, it's not as simple as just, you know, oh, what are they worried about? Let's, let's kind of challenge that. It's going, no, how do, how do we get this, this person in control of other parts of their life as well and just moving more and doing all these things? And how do they then respond when they do have a bit of a flare-up, when their pain does get worse or whatever? It just becomes a little bit more involved and, and, and whatnot, but still just as as much hope for those people as, as anyone else. And, and I think that's probably a really important thing to kind of take yeah. away from that is, you know, if you've been experiencing pain for, for decades, it, it, you know, we can get used to it and be like, this is my lot in life. But yes. at the same time, I, I truly believe it can still completely change. We just, you know, not to give up hope and keep engaging in, in the things that we enjoy doing. Well, that, that is actually wonderful news to hear. And I'm sure very, very many people will be happy to hear that. I'd like to now talk a bit about people who sit a lot. So um, office workers um, often spend a large proportion of their day sitting at a desk. And I did read on the internet, I'm not sure how accurate this statement is, but it said that Australians sit for an average of 10 hours every day at their desk. And whether that number is accurate, I don't, I'm not sure. But the point it makes is that many of us sit a lot. And I have heard sitting um, referred to 
as the new smoking in the popular press. So what I'd like you to share with us, Brendan, is some reasons why sitting all day can result in chronic pain. What are some of the causes of pain and what are some of the most common presentations that you might see? I wouldn't almost go as far to say sitting is the cause of pain. And we probably don't have a huge amount of data to say that it does, which is really interesting because you're right, there is like you know, these popular campaigns that smoking is the new or sitting is the new smoking yeah. rather. And, and I think that's just a sort of a, a, a non-simile really. Um, it's, yeah, well, that's interesting. Mm. Um, and I think that's almost cruel in a lot of ways when we talk about pain and threat and um, how, you know, you know, if we perceive more threat to our body, um, then we're more likely to experience a protective response like pain or, or stiffness or something along those lines, that we have these people who are forced to sit at a, at a desk um, and do their job so that they can provide for their family, do their things, and they don't necessarily have a huge amount of options to leave and then across from their desk is this poster on the wall that says sitting as the new smoking and you think what but why where where has that come from yeah and so yeah look i absolutely think that you know less than um a half of the australian population meet physical activity recommendations and i think it's more of a flipping it on its head a little bit here and it's not to say that you know sitting's great for you by any means but yeah we, we can sit we can you know we can adapt to that and and that's absolutely fine and it's healthy to do so mm-hmm. as long as we are still finding opportunities to move to use our body to engage in physical activity and that doesn't have to necessarily be structured exercise but you know going for you know a lunchtime walk or having walking meetings or finding any opportunity to kind of move or use your body in a way that kind of stresses it to some extent, I think is probably going to be one of the most important things we could do to, to start to offset um, off, offset the, the sedentary lifestyle. So yeah. it's more just not doing anything. that That's probably more a problem rather than sitting itself. Yeah. So you're saying really if you are in a job that requires you to be at your desk to find opportunities to move as much as you can. Yeah, move as much as you can, get out there and talk to people, you know, and I think that's the other thing is like we're correlating it to just the body thing again. And, you know, if you are sitting at your desk for 10 hours a day and all you're doing is emailing other people, then, you know, where's the other social interaction? There's social beings. Exactly right. So, you know, going, all right, who would I like to spend some time with this afternoon after work? And often we feel tired and burned out. Last thing we want to do is more, you know, do any movement or, you know, hang out with friends. But I think, you know, trying to find those opportunities and say, no, this is actually really important. I enjoy these things and making time for that are probably going to be the the better lifestyle choices. Uh, that you can if you don't have to sit for 10 hours a day and you're doing it and you're like oh gosh, then, then don't yeah. <laughs> I think I think that's kind of like a clear thing but if you have to I, I'd say don't beat yourself up about it but find those opportunities and kind of engage in, in that in that way and I think that's probably going to be a, a better way and, and, and aligns with the research better than um, saying that you know sitting is the new smoking right so don't think it's factually correct Oh, that's good to hear too. So, Brendan, if someone uh, does need to sit for, you know, several hours during the day, do you have some tips then on some good ways or optimal ways to sit? If you do have to do it, 
are there techniques you should could possibly think about like do you sit straight do you brace your core things like that yeah well i mean they're, they're the really common things that we hear in all of the campaigns out there in social media land and everything else that you should be sitting upright you should be bracing your core you should be you know in these kind of rigid positions where you've got that 90 degree knee bend and all of those kinds of things. And now what's really interesting about that, because that's exactly what I was taught and the way that I was trained, um, when you can dig a little bit deeper to where those ideas come from, they're not actually built on sound evidence whatsoever, which is really fascinating, right? And so what we're starting to see now um, emerge in terms of the relationships is going, if you do try and sit really up straight and brace your core, you're probably going to fatigue faster and you're going to be more uncomfortable. And then if you have that belief that you should be doing that and you start to feel a little bit of pain discomfort, you'll probably just brace more and sit yeah, more upright. I think I'm not and doing that, it properly. <laughs> I know, yeah, it becomes quite circular and you become exhausted by the end of the day and you're going, well, I've got so much tension through my neck and everything else. And so what we're kind of seeing now is going, all right, so... One is we're going to look at, you know, the workplace efficiency, like making sure you're, you know, set up where you can move, you know, within your space and do your work efficiently, effectively, and that's not too stressful. But also what's comfortable for you? Number, I think this is like the biggest rule is just go, what's comfortable for you? Like my anatomy and your anatomy, Amanda, is completely different, all right? Yeah. To expect us to both have the exact same postures and 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 whatnot the whole time is ridiculous but like i just said before is more movement is better as well so where you can kind of take one posture and then move to another posture and go oh this is comfortable now and now this is starting to get a bit uncomfortable and sensitive move to another one or get up have a bit of a stretch move around and then come back and find what's the next comfortable posture you've got and so it's like it's not saying posture doesn't matter but it's just reconceptualizing what we mean by posture it's just there's no bad postures you slouch if you feel like slouching. At the end of the day, you're sitting on the couch. Why would you have a couch if you're sitting up straight on it? Sell it and buy a really uncomfortable rigid chair. Uh-huh. It's, it, it's, it's just such an interesting thing that we're kind of built up um, a whole industry around yeah, sitting absolutely. upright. It's like and, um, drinking bottled water. You know, people have stopped drinking tap water. It's, um, <laughs> it's sort of this marketing that it's, you know, great and clean and all that stuff and actually it's contributing so much pollution into this world and it's not really necessary well certainly not in a country like australia but what about brendan the uh standing desk uh situation because that's also very popular do you think that's beneficial um i i think it's great for you know some some people are you know really sensitized now sitting and, and maybe because they're just not moving enough or whatever it might be that's kind of led to them you know, becoming more sensitive and, and potentially having these protective responses. And so I think standing desks can be great to just give people another option that they can move. And once again, like we talked about, just finding another posture to sort of sit in, it just gives you another posture that you can stand in. Um, you know, it's just another option. But, you know, if all you're doing is using a standing desk, it's no better than just sitting in the same position for, you know, 10 hours a day either. So I think it, it's it's a nice thing where you can kind of start to move around, you can move up and down, it just gives yeah. you variation. And that's what we're starting to see now in, in sort of all the research around posture and movement is that, you know, for a long time we've been trying to get everyone moving and being having postures that, that uh, adhere to this perfect norm. Mm. However, no one's got that perfect norm and most people without pain are far from the norm. And so 
we don't need to be adhering to these. And in fact, it's quite the opposite. It's just the more variation we have in our movements, the, the, the more likely we are to, you know, be, you know, successful movers and, and, you know, less likely to become sensitized from being in one position too long because we've got lots of options now to sit in and allow different tissues to, you know, yeah. put some work in or, or, or take some of that force. So some of the things you're saying is uh, comfortable position, variation in your posture and move at, you know, every opportunity you can, walking meetings, etc. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, probably upset a few you pull the in there trying to give workplace uh, ergonomic assessments right now. But, I mean, when we really are critical of the research and what we know of big population studies is it doesn't seem to turn the dial um, out of by, by doing that. It may even create more of a problem and it costs a hell of a lot as well. It so. does, yeah. Oh, very, very interesting. I'm really glad I asked you those questions because it certainly has changed my perception a bit I've kind of believed in the whole oh my gosh I can't sit because it's like I'm smoking a packet of um Marlboro Reds here so, <laughs> not that I've ever done that mind you um, yeah sure <laughs> it's almost time to wrap up but I just wanted to ask you quickly one question about exercise because you are an exercise physiologist one thing I'm always curious about and I really don't know if there's an answer to this but there's always been a bit of a sense of no pain, no gain, particularly in sporting um, arenas. So if you're running and you experience pain, are there some general guidelines as to whether you should push through it or whether you should stop? Is that something you can talk to? Um, yeah, and, and I, I think that becomes like it's a very broad question, though, as well. Yes, um, but, but, but no, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think it's a good question nonetheless. I think we can kind of like run through a few different questions in our head to, you know, is this something we've experienced before? What do we think is going on? Mm-hmm. And, you know, do we, do we think it's safe? And, and why, why do we want to continue as well? Like, are we doing it because, like, we're going to let the team down and I've never had this pain before and it's starting to build up and it's getting worse? then I think, you know, that kind of answers your question. If they're the reasons why you're doing it, uh, then you've got to weigh up the pros and cons of yeah. that. And, and, you know, that's up to a person. If, if you've kind of, you know, you've only done, you know, one or two kilometre runs for the last, you know, year and then all of a sudden you're doing a, a half marathon and you're kind of 20, uh, you know, getting towards the end and you, you, your knee's on fire and it's just been building up, building up. It's going, well, we can probably surmise that the amount of load that you've just put through your body is far beyond what you train for. And so your capacity probably wasn't there and, and, and you're probably going to be dealing with a bit of a tissue-based injury. And so backing off is probably going to be a good way to do it. Um, but if it's kind of like, a, oh, I feel a little bit of a niggle, then maybe just try something a little bit different. You can kind of experiment, like what happens if I just try to run a little bit differently or try to relax through my core or something like that to see if you can gain a little bit of control over it. And, you know, a lot of the time, you know, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll start to have a bit of a run and a bit, bit of a niggle in my ankle mm-hmm. for a second and then I'll just go, all right, hang on a second, let's just play around with this a little bit and, you know, let my, my body kind of become accustomed to what it's doing right now and it all kind of fades away. And I think it's one of those things of just kind of getting to know your body by doing that yeah. activity regularly, but kind of gradually building up and adding either the resistance or the, the difficulty or the length of it um, over, over a period of time. And I think 
then it becomes a little bit more clearer going, no, this is abnormal and I'm actually a little bit worried about that, then, hey, just just back off, yeah. give it a bit of a break, keep moving within your tolerances and then start building back up um, afterwards, so I think. listen to your body, ask yourself some searching questions and probably let go of your ego perhaps is, is something as well. Yeah, unless you yeah. just can't let go of your ego. And I know that there's some of us out there that are um, <laughs> cannot do that. And that's 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 fine too, you know, but there's sometimes repercussions for that. But we can all make our own decisions, I guess, at the end of the day. Yeah, at the end of the day. You don't have your exercise physiologist on your shoulder when you're, <laughs> you're running a race, do you? So to make your own call. Brendan, to wrap up, who inspires you? Oh, there's lots of people. Um, I think I mentioned a bit earlier today that, you know, some of the people I get to spend time with um, here at the Body and Mind Research Group, um, one of my supervisors, you know, Tasha Stanton, and, and she does incredible perceptual research and whatnot and, and a really good communicator. She's fantastic. Um, obviously, Laura Mosley, um, yep. very clever guy, great, great speaker as well. And then, I, I've, you know, we've got this great team um, in our in our clinic in, in Melbourne and they're just, you know, I, I learned so much from them and, and the way that they engage in the challenges of our current healthcare climate, you know, with COVID and everything else that's going on. I've just learned so much from, from them and, and really inspired by the way that they go about things. Like I'm very, very lucky that, you know, we've, we've, we've got such a great group like that. So, I mean, there's just so many good people out there and willing to help and change and yeah. challenge the norms and I think for yeah. me that, that they're, they're, the, they're the people who are making the real changes in, in in healthcare. It sounds like you've surrounded yourself with a really wonderful group of people so that's great. Finally a question that I like to ask all of my guests if you could recommend two things that people could do to improve their well-being what would they be? They can be anything. Do make time for the things you love doing. Don't, don't, you know, and I think that's probably like one of the big things in rehab. Often they're the first things to go. Yeah. That we stop doing those things or spending time, less time with the people that we just enjoy hanging out with. So do the things that make you feel good and with the people who you love doing it with that makes you just feel like, you know, the world's incredible. I think that's such an underutilized strategy to recovery. And for a second one is just move more, enjoy moving, your, you know, using your body. There's no right or wrong way to move is, you know, what we talk, talked about before. And that, that might be really challenging some people because that's not what we talk about in our industry where it's always about the right and wrong way to do something and lift yeah. and all of those sorts of things. And what we're starting to see now is like, no, that's not the case. Your body is unique. It's incredible. It, it has resilience and it has the ability to do lots of incredible things in different ways. So explore movement and find different ways to do things and you know even if you are an exerciser you know try to find different ways to do the common exercises that you do do and explore that and, and kind of give yourself the freedom to use all of the different available options you've got and i think if we're kind of doing those things then we build a more resilient robust yeah. capacity within ourselves so that that is excellent advice and Really, you're saying, have a go, try lots of different things, use your body. Yeah, enjoy it rather than, yeah, kind of feel bad about it or, or all those sorts of things that I think there's a lot of shaming in our community about, you know, postures and movement and all that. It makes it harder to engage in exercise and we've got to 
get rid of it because it's not founded on anything other than often healthcare professionals' egos and, and training. And if it's not founded in, in the science, then what's it really doing? It's just someone's idea that's kind of extrapolated across and now becoming a barrier to people engaging and enjoying their bodies and, and movement. Oh, that is wonderful advice. So, Brendan, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure chatting to you today and thank you for being so generous with your time and your knowledge. You're welcome, Amanda. It's been really fun having a chat with you. And that was exercise physiologist and researcher Brendan Mowat challenging some of our accepted beliefs about pain. If you want to check out Brendan's research, I'll put a link to his ResearchGate profile in the show notes. And I'll also put links to his clinical practice, the biomechanics, and to the Knowledge Exchange, where he is a director and educator. Thank you for listening today. I hope you found today's interview interesting or inspiring. If you did, please share the podcast and tell your friends about it. And if you could take a minute to leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, it will help people find my podcast. If you would like to subscribe to Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast, You can subscribe on all good podcast providers like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Spreaker, iHeartRadio and Google Podcasts. You can also subscribe on YouTube. Please follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Amanda's Wellbeing Podcast and check out my website at www.amandaswellbeingpodcast.com where you can contact me via the contacts page And please feel free to suggest topics you'd like to learn more about and people you'd like to hear interviewed, and I will do my best to deliver that to you. Producing the podcast is a labour of love. It has become my full-time job to which I dedicate a lot of time, money and effort. If you enjoy my podcast and would like to support it, I would be so grateful. You can make contributions via my Patreon page, which is a bit of a work in progress, I must admit, or via PayPal from the support page on my website. I'll put a link to that in the show notes, so please do check it out. Another way you can support my podcast is by purchasing a book from the book reviews page on my website. If you click on the Amazon link there, at no extra cost to you, I will receive a small commission when you buy a book, for which I would be very grateful. Thank you for tuning in. Eat well, move well, think well.